Welcome back to another episode of Creedal Theology and Culture. I am very excited to be joined by today's guest, Dr. Lawrence Feingold. I was just speaking with Dr. Feingold before I hit the record button, and I was reminding him that he may not have a recollection of this, but I was actually at his house for a dinner party where he and his wife graciously hosted me and my wife uh, and several other couples. And it was just it was just fantastic to sit at his dinner table and listen to them both share their story of, of entering the church uh, and, and how the Holy Spirit has worked in their lives since then. So Dr. Feingold, welcome to Creedal. It's a joy to have you and to be reunited in this way. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, joy to be here. Absolutely. So I, I know that you are a professor of many of our seminarians for the Archdiocese of St. Louis and some other dioceses across the country, but give me a little bit more of a background on, on what you've done and where you've been and how you came to be in the position in which you find yourself today. Well, um, I've got a Jewish name, Feingold, and um, I was actually raised as Jewish atheist. So my dad was a Jewish atheist and my mom was a fallen away Protestant. So I was raised without any, um, um, any religion at all. Um, and so, and my wife was, um, a, also a Jewish atheist, time we got married. God wasn't mentioned in our wedding. But what led us first to the faith was art. And, and so I, I fell in love with Christian art through an art history class. I took my first year of college here in St. Louis, Washington University. And, and then I wanted to do sculpture. And so that led us um, to a year abroad in, uh, in Germany while we were in college. And then three years we lived in Italy when I was trying to do sculpture, we lived in um, next to Carrara, where they quarry the marble. And we were always in churches looking at Donatello and Michelangelo and Bernini. And and, the, and uh, we would leave when there would be a mass. But um, um, we encountered Christ through the patrimony of Christian arts. That was a, But it didn't take us all the way. And after about seven years of marriage, we were, we were living in Italy at this time. And it was really marriage that brought us the final way. And my wife was pregnant with our, our son, and um, she had a great deal of anxiety in the pregnancy. And, and so much so, I didn't fully realize, so much so, one day she said she didn't want to live. And so that was the actually the moment of grace. It hit me. I'm not able to fulfill her. Wow. Um, she's made for something bigger than the love I can give her, which I, I couldn't give her what she needed. And I could see that on that day. And so it just hit me. If there isn't um, God the Father who loves her um, unconditionally, infinitely, um, life doesn't make sense. Um, we would be unable to, um, the human heart would be made for something that wouldn't exist. And that would be absurd. Anyways, that was, and I saw, I never prayed in my life. Um, so I, um, I realized I had to pray to ask him to teach me to, to love her. Um, and so the next day I took a train to, I was going to go pray in the uh, cathedral in Florence, art. And um, on the way, I felt moved to pray for the first time. Teach wow. me to love and to be a light unto others. Anyways, that was the beginning. And I, I felt there. Um, so I knew something from scripture, from art history. Um, so I knew some Bible verses, the baptism of Christ and Psalm number two, you are my son, this day have begotten you. And that went together in my mind with, and you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased of Christ's baptism. And I understood somehow by grace that that was being said principally by the father to, to Jesus and to us in him. And so I saw we had to be Christian. And so we ended up getting baptized in the Anglican church in Florence. It seemed an easier step than the Catholic church. And, but and the fact was we had fallen in love with Catholic culture. 
And so it didn't make any sense really to enter a Reformation church. Mm -hmm. um, I had misgivings um, when we were baptized there. Um, I had thought of becoming an Anglican priest and was married. But um, a couple months after that, so we were confirmed then in the Anglican church about three months later. But um, I picked up um, a Newman reader, a book of St. John Henry Newman, who I'd heard of but didn't know anything about. And that really spoke to me. So then I read his essay on the development of doctrine and mm -hmm. uh, his, um, his autobiography. Mm -hmm. um, and so then we entered RCIA. So that was 19, um, we were baptized in 1988, and then um, we entered the Catholic Church in 1989, the Easter Vigil, uh, March 25th, and my wife and I. And um, so we were baptized with our baby, and then um, my wife and I entered the Catholic Church together. That was great grace. And I wanted to study theology, so I felt moved to leave beside the art. Mm -hmm. and, and so we knew Italian, so we ended up going back to Rome, and we ended up living in Rome for eight years, and I studied at the... Um, the University of the Holy Cross. That's the Opus Dei University in, in Rome. And we spent a year in Jerusalem learning Hebrew and Greek uh, in the middle, studying with the Franciscans. Um, that's kind of our basic story. I always wanted to, to use it, though, not simply to be an academic, but to, um, uh, to unite theology and the spiritual life and to um, teach to form. Um, so my dream was to teach to form future priests. Um, so I, I taught for a while for a religious order, Milis Christi, and then I worked for Ave Marie University for several years in a master's program for, for lay people. And then since 2012, I've been teaching at Kenrick um, Glennon Seminary in St. Louis, the St. Louis Diocese Seminary. I love it there, here. And uh, yeah, I'm very happy doing that. And so I teach systematic theology. And so that is the, the sacraments, the Eucharist, but also fundamental theology, Christology, Mariology. Um, those are my main courses. Great. Well, thank you so much for that introduction. Yes, you are you're a fascinating person. I remember, I mean, I thank you for reminding me of some of those aspects. I completely forgotten, by the way, that you were baptized Anglican. Uh, and so we both, we both share a common lineage in that sense. I was a former Anglican, uh, uh, or I am a former Anglican. I was an Anglican once upon a time. Um, and so we can talk more about that. Um, and I, I love how your story is so full of encounter. It's not, it's not, it is about sort of, you know, coming to terms intellectually with the faith, but it's really before that, it's about coming to terms aesthetically with the faith as you encounter the beauty of the faith. So talk to me just a little bit more about your time in Italy and how, how that showed you that there, that there was more to be, to, more to be had, that you couldn't be an atheist um, in good conscience. You couldn't be sort of an, an intellectually honest atheist uh, while you're wandering around all of these beautiful churches in Italy and encountering well, Catholic culture. Right. Well, what's amazing, really, is that we... So there's a capacity for incoherence in human beings. That's mm -hmm. pretty large. And so what's really amazing for me, looking in hindsight, is the convert, the opposite, really. How is it that I could have fallen in love with Christian art and have pursued that for 10 years and stayed an atheist? Yeah, that's true. That's really the surprising thing. Because... Um, I mean, the, the Christian, I mean, I loved art of other cultures as well, but there's Christ on the cross. That, I mean, to me, that was the ultimate of the most profound um, artistic um, symbol image. Um, and of course, I was thinking of it only in that way. But one, um, a couple months maybe, or maybe it was just shortly before our conversion, I remember being in St. Peter's and not St. in um, in the Sistine Chapel. 
Mm. And I was looking at the, the Last Judgment and it was filled with tourists and they're taking pictures. And, and it just hit me, you know, we're all ooing and eyeing, but nobody's asking, is there a judgment? Is it true? And what would Michelangelo think about that? Right, because he painted this um, not so that we would have an aesthetic experience, but so that the cardinals would remember judgment when they're voting for the Roman pontiff. Right. Uh, anyway, so that was kind of a jolt, but I still remained a, an atheist. But it's ultimately the beauty of the human person that's the most, um, the ultimate thing. Um, it's, I mean, it's one thing to have a blackboard theory about, yeah, there's, um, that would, I don't know, existentialist atheism. But it's another thing when you love somebody mm. and that person um, is, um, is seeking for meaning in life desperately. Um, and atheism ultimately says that the human person doesn't, isn't loved into being and loved into a still fuller destiny. And when you love someone, that, that can't be acceptable, right? That can't be true. Yeah. That's beautiful. No, you, uh, yeah. Thank, thank you for talking a little bit more about that. I mm -hmm. think it is, it is remarkable. And I was just reflecting on your story as you were sharing it and thinking, this is really just about encounter. This man encountered the love of God and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm guessing that's what has shaped your, your further emphasis on systematic theology, especially with the Eucharist and the sacraments, because these are all, these are all about encountering mm -hmm. right. God. Right. Totally. Yes. And I think it's, and so many people, so many Catholics, have um, such a shallow view of um, the sacramental encounter with God, right? And so we have to wake up, um, um, yeah, not just those who aren't Catholic, but um, Catholics as well. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Well, we're, we're having you on the show today to discuss your latest book, Speaking of the Sacraments. It's called Touched by Christ, the Sacramental Economy. I'm moving it in front of the camera here. I encourage all of my listeners to pick this up. This is a fantastic, fantastic book. Um, I'm guessing you wrote this uh, primarily for your seminary audience to be used as a textbook. I know that's why you wrote your other book on the Eucharist, which is equally large and equally magnificent. Um, but what, what surprises me about this, Dr. Feingold, is that this is it's really accessible. So it's written for a professional audience, I'm guessing at least, but it, it feels like it's written... For me, I mean, I feel like it feels like it's written for someone who who is a lay Catholic and just thinks, "What what are all the what what are these sacraments? I can list them, I can name the seven sacraments, and I can tell you in a vague sense that this is the ways in which we encounter Christ and the ways in which we grow in grace." But, but you know, there's more to it, and how do I understand? So, tell me a little bit more about that. Why did you write the book, and and really, who was it written for? Okay, yeah. So it's um, I mean, it has a direct audience, and that's my students, um, and so I just find it very helpful to teach something. And before writing, sure, uh, that writing and teaching go together, and so that's what I do in all my classes. Is I um, I write the, and I don't like to. Maybe this sounds terrible, but um, I find it difficult to use somebody else's script, as it were, and so I like to shape it, and and then the book grows as I teach it. One year, two years, three years, you find out what works, what connects with the students, and what doesn't. What needs more clarification? This needs. Um, and that makes it so all. And so this book has grown out of teaching this class, Introduction to Sacraments, over about six or seven years. And the same thing for the Eucharist book. And yeah, I've been teaching them since 2012. Great. And well, then I, the I'm, second thing is I. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted also to reach not just my students, so um, all lay 
Catholics who want to deepen their faith, and then professors of theology as well, right? So it, it basically has a threefold audience. Um, um, for me, I mean, Thomas Aquinas is a, a great model, and he wrote his Summa of Theology for students, right? For his Dominican um, scholastics. Um, but of course, it serves um, lay people and scholars as well. And one of the things I try and do is to, I want to get the whole picture. And that mm -hmm. means different kinds of unity. So um, in organizing a textbook, you have to, St. Thomas Aquinas would think very carefully about what goes first. So you get a pedagogical order. Right? What's the, and how does it build? And of course, there are different ways to do it. But um, so I think deeply about that. And then I want to make a unity of scripture and, um, and systematic theology. Right? So scripture is the soul of theology. And there was a complaint against theology manuals um, that they were too dry and neglected scripture. Right? So in the 19th century, there were lots of theology manuals, which did an important work. But I think the criticism is generally true. They, there needed to be a deeper um, injection of scripture and um, that it needs to be written in such a way that fosters prayer. So I like to tell my students, well, w the way I write this, mostly, most, almost all of my ideas um, come in prayer. So after Mass, after receiving the Eucharist, I like to spend a half hour um, in prayer. And that's when I get my best ideas about. Um, and so I would hope that those who read this likewise bring it to prayer. And that's the way theology should be done. And um, so to unify, um, yeah, so that it should nourish the spiritual life as well as informing. Yeah, and again, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to point back to this idea of encounter. It's it's comforting to me that this is not simply a sort of um, a, a work, a magisterial work that you've tried to embark upon with mathematical precision. You may have done that, but you've also taken it to prayer, and you've you know you you've encountered our Lord in the Eucharist, you've received Him, and then you've taken this book and the ideas herein to prayer. And then this, this work that I was just holding up to the camera a few minutes ago is really the product of that. And I think that's really remarkable. I also appreciate what you were saying about the structure. You know, the structure does have a pedagogical aspect to it. And so if you just leaf through the table of contents, you can sort of see what you're doing here. And when I first got this book in the mail, uh, I opened it up and the table of contents really did remind me of the Summa, just, just the way in which Thomas very deliberately structures the Summa to try to convey truth, that's exactly what you've done in this book. And so I think that's great. Let, let's talk about the subtitle a little bit. Uh, you, the, the title, again, is Touched by Christ, the Sacramental Economy. Economy in, a, in the modern context often refers to this, you know, exchange of goods and services. Um, that's not quite what you're getting at with the okay, sacramental right. economy. So, mm -hmm. so what is the sacramental economy? Right. So economy is a technical term in theology. So the fathers of the church spoke about and theology, that would be the, the trinity, the internal life of God. And the economy is what ha God has done outside of himself, sending his son into the world, the incarnation, and the Holy Spirit. And that would be the economy. And so it comes from the, the, the meaning of the word as an exchange. And so um, it does have something to do with our meaning of economy, um, an exchange of goods and services, as it were. But here, so the exchange, the ultimate exchange is um, the Son of God took what was ours, becoming man, mm -hmm. to give us a share of what is his, right? And that's first and foremost, sonship, right? So the Son of God became a son of man to make us sons and daughters of men, sons 
and daughters of God. And with that goes everything else. Sanctification. In the Eastern tradition prefers divinization. And so the incarnation is the, the center, we could say, of the economy. But Christ comes precisely to send his spirit. Um, and so how does he do this? How does the economy get worked out, as it were? Um, and it's fundamentally through the sacraments. And this is something that would distinguish the Catholic view of sacraments from a Protestant view. Um, so yes, the incarnation is central, and that's why the title is Touched by Christ. But how? Um, how does he give us his divine life, a share in his divine life, and a progressive share? And we can speak here of the ordinary ways and extraordinary ways. The ordinary ways are the seven sacraments of the church. Right? And so he gives us that life. And we'll, we can talk a little bit about why seven and not, um, maybe we'll get to that in a few minutes. Um, so that's the idea of economy. He's taken what is ours and he wants to give us what is his, but in a way proper to us, the recipients. And hence, he gives us his grace, not simply as grace would be given to an angel, spiritually and invisibly, but using signs. And that's what we mean by sacraments, sacred signs, visible, sensible signs that we encounter in our world. Um, using things similar to the other religions of the world and cultures of the world, sacred signs, but sacred signs that give the grace that they represent. Yeah. Beautiful. That That is a great uh, setup for my next question, which is what is the best definition of a sacrament? And I know you... You spend a lot of time in the beginning of your book examining exactly this question because you'll find different definitions, even in the Catholic tradition. Uh, they might be getting at the same thing, but just worded okay. in different ways, uh, perhaps equating uh, the old versus the new covenant sacraments. Um, you'll find varying definitions, especially if you contrast Catholic with Protestant definitions. So this is a really important definition to sort of pin down if we're going to have a common understanding of the sacrament. So let's talk about that a little bit. What is the best definition of a sacrament? Yeah. So I actually don't give a, a definition in the book because, um, and one can state it in different ways, as long as you have four fundamental elements. And so the four fundamental elements, the first is it's a, a sensible sign, right? So a, either visible or, or um, yeah, so a sensible sign. One that we can apprehend with our senses, right? Not, not, not sensible in the sense that it's reasonable or like, right. no, uh, no. you know, it's, right. yeah. Sensible, yeah. it can be apprehended with our senses. Right. Christ, um, so um, instituted, if we so let's give a definition first of the, the sacraments of the new covenant, and then we can go to the old covenant. Okay. So the sacraments of the new covenant are sensible signs instituted by Christ as his instruments to give the sanctification that they represent. So that's the center of it right there. In other words, they're sacred signs that convey, communicate, what they represent, mm -hmm. the grace that they represent. All right. And so that's the most important part there. Um, and then the fourth is um, they're entrusted to the church and they build up the church. So sacred signs instituted by Christ um, to give the grace that they represent entrusted to the church, which they build up. Right? Or you could say to build up the church 
to whom they're entrusted. Okay. So those, and you talk about that in the book, right? Those are the, mm-hmm. the four common elements mm-hmm. that are necessary. And I think you even mentioned that it's the ecclesiastical dimension, the fourth, that has been more recently developed, but you mm-hmm. see it as just as important as the the other three, because partly because that distinguishes between the new and the old covenant sacraments. Is that right? Right. So if now if we wanted to apply to the old covenant, obviously we'd have to take away the instituted by Christ, mm-hmm. and we'd have to uh, modify somewhat the... Um, so the sacraments of the Old Covenant are signs of sanctification um, that built up the Old Covenant and the people of God, but um, represented a sanctification that they couldn't give of themselves. Right? And the reason for that is because um, Christ hadn't yet come. And so Christ, that's again the reason for the title, Touched by Christ. He stands at the center of the sacramental economy and thus his coming distinguishes two different kinds of sacraments, Old Testament sacraments and New Testament sacraments. Right? Old Testament sacraments, circumcision, the Passover, the different sacrifices of the Old Covenant. So to make this more concrete, let's take circumcision for, for an example. Circumcision is a sacrament of the Old Covenant, but it is obviously not instituted by Christ since Christ's incarnation happened right. after circumcision was instituted mm-hmm. as a sign of the old covenant. But secondly, perhaps even more significantly, or really because of the, the first instance, be, mm-hmm. because of the first lack, right? because they're not instituted by Christ, circumcision does not bring about a sanctifying grace like baptism does. So baptism replaces circumcision. Baptism is the new circumcision, but it is instituted by Christ. And because it's instituted by Christ, the baby who is baptized experiences a sanctification at the moment of their baptism brought about by the sacrament itself. Whereas the baby who is circumcised is uh, experiences a sign of the old covenant, but does not actually experience a corresponding sanctification that is not due to the sacrament itself. Great, great okay. question. So the Thomas Aquinas, and in fact, the, um, almost all medieval theologians held that the circumcision um, also would have been the occasion of the babies of the old covenant to receive sanctifying grace. Okay. So the ultimate effect would be sanctification. But the difference would be that since Christ instituted baptism and works through it as his instrument, baptism itself is the cause of the grace given, whereas the cutting away of the foreskin doesn't have any necessary link with the giving of grace, um, but God can give grace on that occasion because he's faithful to his covenant. So that would be the... So in terms of the actual... And so we don't want to say that the people of the old covenant weren't sanctified, mm-hmm. but those of the new, we are sanctified in a more perfect kind of way. Okay. Um, precisely because Christ is working through the instruments that he himself has instituted and which are the sacraments of the new covenant. So then this is related to the ex opera operato right. argument, yeah. right? That the new uh, sacraments, right. the new sacraments work, by the working of the work because they're instituted by Christ, whereas the old did not. They could be occasions for God to act, but but they would not confer by themselves the grace. Right. That's right. The best way that um, I think to understand this is to compare it to the miracles of Christ. Um, so before Christ, yes, the prophets could work miracles invoking, right, invoking Yahweh, invoking the, the God of the covenant. And... Um, Christ worked miracles without right, invoking another 
but through his very power, right? And so he mm-hmm. says to the um, to the leper and touches him, right? And so the leper asks, "If you will, you can uh, you can heal me. I will be healed." And we should think that the very words used by Christ worked the healing. Just as in other occasions, he took mud and put it on a blind man's eyes. And um, we should think that that action worked the healing. And so the sacraments continue that healing action throughout the time of the new covenant. Right? So just as Christ used words that did what they said, right, when he was walking through Galilee and Judah. Mm-hmm. And so today he continues to work through his own, through the words that he's instituted, spoken now by others as his ministers. Right? Spoken by That's, his priests yeah. who have holy orders. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it makes me realize there are so many implications for just the Christology of the priesthood, right? And mm-hmm. and who the priest is and is the priest actually in persona Christi or is he not? Um, and that obviously gets to a lot of the theological distinctions and debates and dissensions between Catholicism and Protestantism. Um, so maybe we can take this conversation there next. What are some ways that we can differentiate the Catholic and Protestant understandings of a sacrament? And I ask this uh, knowing of course, and you even cite this, right? That, um, there are, there are ways in which John Calvin and Martin Luther certainly differ in their interpretations from each other. And then there are, uh, you know, then there are the sort of Zwinglian, uh, assertions that it is symbol only, right? So, th- so there's even a large continuum in Protestantism. So maybe we can take a couple of representative examples. Maybe maybe talk about Calvin's position and Luther's, and we can we can go from there. Okay. Yeah. So the fundamental. Well, so there are many many differences, and in fact, we can see from the Council of Trent so much of the Council of Trent focused on the sacraments, mm-hmm. that that was at the heart of the Reformation. So the the differences are first and foremost the efficacy. In other words, what are the effects of the sacraments? First of all, maybe I should say how, how a sacrament is defined. So for Luther, um, and basically this can becomes the dominant view in, in the Protestant world, a sacrament is above all a sensible promise. So a promise of God represented by a sensible sign. Whereas what we just said before, the Catholic understanding, well, yes, it's a, a sign, but a sign not of simply of a promise that might be paid in the future, but a sign of a present effect. Right? So that's maybe the fundamental difference there in terms of definition. Um, and f- from that, a sign of a future promise, um, a second difference is that for both Luther and Calvin, fundamentally the sacraments of the Old and New Covenant don't differ in their, um, in their structure and effects. Um, they're both promises of um, s- sensible signs of a divine promise to be grasped. Which makes, yeah, and it makes sense given your previous discussion about circumcision because circumcision is a sign of the promise. Mm-hmm. It, is this, it is a sign of God's promise of the Old Covenant. And when we were distinguishing that from baptism, baptism is certainly a sign of the promise, but it's also the cause of the right. sanctification that happens. Right. Yeah. Right. And so that's what gets excluded at the Reformation pretty much across the board, that they, the sacraments could be true, efficient causes of grace. And so that there we get the rejection of um, what the Catholic um, theology in technical terms expresses by working ex opere operato, which means through the work worked. In other words, um, through the work of Christ, 
operating in the sacrament. So I think in part there we've got, in part it's a misunderstanding. So very often um, a Protestant rejection of the Catholic teaching went together with misunderstanding really what the Catholic teaching was. Um, and so there was the fear that in the, the Catholic understanding of sacraments was that we're doing works that are meritorious, celebrating masses and so forth. And that's not obviously the meaning of um, sanctification through the work done. The work done is Christ's work, not the, the human work. And so the Catholic understanding of sacraments is that they are efficacious because Christ is faithful and is active and he um, his words don't come back to him void. And so I think it can be helpful in dis discussing with Protestants to use um, the Protestant category of the word of God, right? So the sacraments are visible words of God, but they're words not that don't simply promise something in the future, they're words that affect something in the present, right? So efficacious words of God. So that can be perhaps a way of meeting the, um, the Protestant dialogue partner in, in a category that he's um, comfortable with. That totally makes sense. And I liked your description of, or, or your sort of recollection of the miracles that we see Jesus perform when he you know, tells the lame man, for example, get up and walk, uh, or puts the mud on the blind man's eyes, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's not that, uh, it, it would be very strange for us to somehow say that when Jesus does that, what he's doing is giving God the Father occasion to work a miracle, right? Mm -hmm. but rather, rather, we're saying that, no, this is God, the incarnate Son of God, who's actually... Right working the grace uh, in this in this uh, case, if a mode of physical healing, working it by virtue of what he says and what he does. Right, and, and I think one can make a beautiful connection with the difference between the human way of using words and the divine way of using words, right? When we use words, we're basically conveying something that's in our mind that describes reality, but doesn't create reality. But in right. Genesis 1, God speaks, let there be light, and there's light. Mm -hmm. In other words, the divine work is word is creative. It does what it says. And so that's how we should understand the sacramental word said by the, the priest or other minister in the sacraments. That's yeah. yeah, that that's that's totally beautiful. And it it makes a lot of sense to me as a Catholic. I mean, I, I think when I've had conversations with Protestants, uh it it often doesn't necessarily come across that way or we don't share that understanding. Now, now I'm I'm armed. Thanks to you, I'm armed with some more perspective to share with them in those conversations. But um, one common objection that I've heard is that there are not actually seven sacraments; okay. that there are only two. This is a very common Protestant position, as you're well aware. Uh, in fact, as an Anglican, uh, which which you are also a former Anglican, uh, you'll you'll know that the Thirty Nine Articles specifically say that there are only two instituted by Christ. Um, the Anglican position, in general, as I understand it, is that there are sacramental rites, and those would include things like matrimony and extreme unction. But they're not actually sacraments, properly speak, properly speaking. The reason being that Christ did not institute them. So, um, you know, I've encountered this objection before, and you you explore this a little bit, or actually quite a bit, in your book, and you explain, mm -hmm. you know, why seven sacraments, etc. Um, but do you think it strengthens the Protestant position with respect to this question specifically uh, and exclusively? Do you think it strengthens the Protestant position um, that there was not a formal definition of the seven sacraments until I think twelve seventy four? Right. Um, yeah. So let me speak to that. Um, so there's a lot here to say about this. Um, first, so 
a first thing is the sacraments we speak of seven sacraments and for catholics this is a dogma of faith defined at the council mm-hmm. of trent it's not negotiable but um that doesn't mean that the seven sacraments are equally important in the life of the church and it absolutely is true that two of them have a greater importance baptism as the foundation of the sacramental economy and the eucharist as the culmination the queen and the summit the source and summit of the sacramental economy. So in that sense, yes, we can speak of two having a preeminence. And um, for that reason, Scripture speaks much more, the New Testament, of baptism and the Eucharist than of the other sacraments. But it also hints at the others um, as well. Um, And it's also interesting that in the Fathers of the Church, um, we don't get a list of the seven sacraments either. So not in Scripture, nor in the Fathers. And what the Fathers very often say is, and baptism, the Eucharist, and other such things. I'd say yeah, I think in, in the book, at one point, you cite Augustine saying almost exactly right. that. You know, baptism yeah. and, yeah, right. Eucharist and, and other this, sacraments. These others can be too long. In other words, they might list um, things like burial and uh, religious consecration and, and other things that we don't regard as sacraments. Um, and then and the other lists are too short. Um, and so that's an interesting thing. And what that points to is that... Um, Christ, in instituting the church and in instituting the sacraments, instituted a life and modes of Christian life. And reflection happens later. So Christ didn't institute systematic theology. He instituted the liturgical life of his kingdom, the church. And it required reflection. And astonishingly, 12 centuries of reflection to come to this list of seven sacraments. So to me, that doesn't mean that I ought to be suspicious of this list, but on the contrary, to recognize kind of the marvel of the difference between life and reflection. And life comes first, and above all, liturgical life. Um, And then the second thing is, you need a definition in order to know how many things fall under a definition. True, yeah, good point. Sacrament differently, you'll get different lists of things that fall under it. All right, St. Augustine had too broad of a definition, right? So St. Augustine has a famous definition, sacred sign, sacred sign of sanctification. And, and that would include our sacramentals now, right? Right, and absolutely, it would include sacramentals, and it even would include um, sacred images. Um, but um, obviously he didn't mean that, but um, his definition that he was working with was simply too broad. And then if one um, speaks of, um, say, promise rather than, in other words, the Lutheran definition, you'll get a different list, right? So it matters. And so what's interesting is that um, we get really that definition that we spoke about earlier with the the four elements, at least the three, and above all, the signs that do what they represent, right, as being the kind of the key element, that comes in the 12th century, in the 12th century scholastics. And part of the reason it comes there and not earlier is because the sacramental system or economy wasn't challenged by heresies in the first millennium, which is kind of remarkable considering what's happened in the second millennium and above all with the Protestant Reformation. For the first millennium, there were heresies that you know, Christological, Trinitarian, um, key fundamental things, but the liturgical life of the church wasn't challenged by heresy. And part of what motivates theological reflection is the necessity to defend the faith against 
against challenges, in other words, against heresies. And so it's been in the second millennium that the churches had to reflect. And it happens precisely in the 11th century with Berengarius um, challenging um, the real presence in the Eucharist. And that's really what um, is the first impetus. And it happened to um, coincide with the rise of Aristotelian philosophy and a philosophical um, uh, a development of, of theology in the schools that made use of scholastic philosophical categories that was able to um, ask new questions and give newer answers that led to this reflection that resulted in um, the 12th century, a list of seven sacraments. First in the theologians, and then shortly thereafter in the magisterium. But not formally until the Council of Trent. And again, the reason for that being the challenge of Luther and other Protestants saying that they're just two. But let me say something more about what's the importance of this. And, and so I think, um, well, obviously, the first importance is that if one holds there are only two sacraments, and in, if in reality there are seven, one has flattened out um, a huge part of this economy that the second person Trinity became man in order to impart to us. And we don't want to do that, right? In those, we want to receive the gifts that he wanted to give us that were fitted to human life. So there's a, a, a great question in St. Thomas Aquinas' Summa of Theology where he asks, why is it fitting that there be seven sacraments? And his answer is, well, let's think about the needs of our physical life. In our physical life, yes, we need birth, we need food, our baptism and the Eucharist, but that's not all we need. We need growth. We need to grow to maturity. And we need um, healing. Um, and so in our spiritual life, we need a sacrament of healing. That is for the illness of sin and post-baptismal sin, hence the sacrament of penance. And that growing to maturity, that sacrament of growth is confirmation. And then um, in our physical life, we have to prepare for death. And so it's fitting that there be a sacrament um, in our supernatural life that helps us in that way, when we're physically weak, in danger of death by illness, to, to be made spiritually strong, um, to prepare us for our particular judgment and our encounter with Christ, and to sanctify illness and, um, and suffering. And that would be the sacrament of anointing the sick. Right? So it's not the fundamental sacrament, and we don't see it so clearly um, instituted by Christ in Scripture, but there's a hint if you're, if you're attentive, and that would be Mark... Um, 6.13. That's when we had that not long ago in the, uh, the lectionary. That's when um, Jesus sends out the apostles two by two. And mm -hmm. among the things they're told is to anoint the sick and to heal. Right. Them. Yes. And so we can see in there Christ having instituted this. It's just a hint because this is not the most fundamental sacrament, but it's there. Um, yeah. And with regard to penance, though, it's much clearer. That's Easter Sunday. Jesus on Easter Sunday, comes into the upper room, breathes on the apostles, and this is John chapter 20, um, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them. Right? And so that um, is beautiful to connect the sacrament of penance, which for many of us, for most of us, or practically all Catholics, is not the most um, associated in our minds with an Easter gift. That's an Easter gift because it's the means to unburden the conscience um, sacramentally. Um, as far as confirmation, he didn't institute that during his public ministry, um, 
but he promised it, right? So he promised it above all after the last um, supper in his discourse in John 14 through 16. Um, and then again in Acts 1, tells them to remain in Jerusalem, the apostles. Um, but he's, it's instituted properly on Pentecost, and he's already ascended into heaven. And there's a reason for that. It's because the um, confirmation corresponds to, um, well, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit to lead us to spiritual maturity. And so it makes sense that Christ, um, so just as Moses ascended Mount Sinai to come down with the Torah, with the law, the tablets of the law, to sanctify the, the people of the old covenant, Christ ascended a higher mount, ascends into heaven to send the Holy Spirit where with the Father, right? So the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so Christ manifests that by ascending first to his Father and then together with the Father, sending the Spirit 10 days later on Pentecost. And that's the origin of our sacrament of confirmation. And every confirmation is a re-presentation, is where a re-actualization of the mystery of Pentecost. And so, yes, instituted by Christ, but um, first communicated after his right. savior. And then right. finally, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and so the orders. I haven't oh, yes, yeah. So that would be, the, the and it's of, not just an individual, but a social being. Right. And in our social life, we need headship, right? So every society has some form of headship, political governance. Um, and so the church likewise needs a headship, but not a natural or merely political one, but one that, that comes from below. But we would like one, and in fact, we have received one that comes from above, mm -hmm. um, that gives a share of Christ's own headship and enables the bishop and priest who receive that to act in his person in administering the sacraments. Um, and then in our natural life, we need matrimony um, as the means of um, fittingly propagating the human race. And so in the supernatural economy, we don't need another thing, but simply that very matrimony to be elevated, to be now a sacred sign of Christ and the church and a means of giving to the spouses the graces that they need to sanctify matrimony in, or, in order to be a living icon of Christ and the church. And so the, the sevenfold sacramental system corresponds to human life. And if we were to cut out parts of it, um, we would be cutting out crucial parts of the sanctification that we need right, to live a human life. Perhaps the most tragic was the, um, the denial that holy orders is a sacrament on the part of the Protestant Reformation, right? because that resulted in um, the loss of all those sacraments that depend on a priestly minister. And thus what ended up happening in the Protestant Reformation was not only the loss of five sacraments, but also of six, because the Eucharist requires a priestly minister who has holy orders. And so if one rejects the sacrament of holy orders, one loses um, the Lord's Supper as a, as a sacramental reality, even though Obviously, Protestants don't intend that. Right. That that totally makes sense. And um, that has been especially poignant in my own journey, just recognizing Leo XIII when he commissioned the investigation of Anglican holy orders and then ended up declaring them, I think the words were utterly null and void yeah. uh, because of what they had rejected about holy orders from an ontological standpoint. Um, I, but I really appreciated how you brought this out in your book and how you just walked us through this. And I want to repeat this for the listening or viewing audience here, because this is, I think, really important. So um, Thomas and others, but Thomas is probably the most sort of pithy 
um, and concise way, talks about why it's fitting that there are seven sacraments. And he argues that there are five sacraments which correspond to our physical lives and two that correspond to our social lives. So baptism corresponds to birth, uh, Eucharist to our nourishment, our, our eating food to survive, mm-hmm. to be alive, confirmation to our um, strengthening, uh, our growing to maturity, confession to our healing, and then extreme unction to our eventual death. And then on the social side, uh, we, need, we, need, we need political order. We need you know, a structure to the way that we order ourselves, and that's uh, why God instituted holy orders. And then also on the social side, uh, we need children to propagate the human race. We need families, and that's why God instituted matrimony. Um, and I think th- that's a really powerful way of thinking about why there are seven sacraments. And it, it's not a, you know, um, ex post facto mm-hmm. explanation of why there are these seven sort of randomly selected sacraments, but rather it is a, a, a justification um, looking at the natural order which God instituted and recognizing that, that Jesus Christ gave his church these seven things that correspond to our earthly lives as well. Right. And again, the most important, right? birth and food, right? Because mm-hmm. you need those things to be alive at all. Right. And one more thing you can see from this is that also the number of times we can receive a sacrament. So since we're born only once, it makes sense, only one baptism, right? We, the, the process of growing to maturity happens once, one confirmation. But nourishment, I like three meals a day and... Um, I like daily Eucharist. <laughs> I like, I need, um, so we need spiritual nourishment frequently, right? Because we need physical. In other words, it corresponds to that. And so that makes this sense of the Eucharist as the most frequently received sacrament. Um, and then after the Eucharist, healing, right? So we need healing more than once in life. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense that there's frequent confession in the church. Um Anyway, yeah, that's that's really helpful. Yeah, yeah thank you for uh, for walking us through that. And uh, again, I appreciate how that was in your book. One final question I have for you before we're out of time. I actually, have, I have multiple more okay. questions for you. So maybe maybe I can convince you to come back on and, and talk to me about some more of yeah. these things. Um, but I do have a question about confirmation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reading in your book. Now, let me give you a little background. Uh, my wife and I have a daughter who is preparing, or we are preparing her as as her primary spiritual formators. We are preparing preparing her to receive the Eucharist for the first time. So she's, you know, right around the age of First Communion, getting there. Mm-hmm. And um, our diocese has historically been been allowed, but the, the individual parishes in our diocese have been allowed by our bishop to uh, practice restored order. Uh, restored order uh, is, as you know, Dr. Feingold, but listeners may not, um, when the child is able to receive confirmation prior to receiving the Eucharist, even though they're only seven years old, despite the fact that in North America, at least, the norm is that you're, you know, 12 or 13 before you are confirmed. Um Archbishop Aquila in um, Denver does this as well. In Den- in Denver, they practice restored order. There are, I think, I don't know, four or five other dioceses mm-hmm. in the U.S., maybe more by now, that, yeah. that, do, that, that, that do restored order. Um, but my wife and I were talking about this uh, about a week and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And I was saying, you know, this, you know, we, we have a brand new bishop here. Um, he seems like a wonderful man, Bishop James Golka yeah, in I, our I, diocese. Yeah, um, a few weeks ago when I was in, oh, great. Um, I was in North Platte in, um, where he was from. The uh, Yes. Mm-hmm. From Great. Right. Well, he seems like a wonderful man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I mean, we just haven't had any indication from him whether or not you know, he'll he'll permit restored order. Mm-hmm. I hope he will. 
But I was telling my wife a month, a week and a half ago that this is not really an issue that I see as crucially important. Um, I want my daughter to be confirmed, mm-hmm. you know, obviously at, at age 12 or 13. But I will say that uh, then I read your book. Uh-huh. And now I actually think that it is crucially important. And I really, really hope that our bishop um, continues to permit restored order in our diocese. So I'm wondering if you can talk us through a little bit about the theology behind that. You mentioned how in the Eastern tradition, both Eastern Catholic churches and in Orthodoxy, um, uh, baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist are all done together. Right. Um, right. You know, you, you get it, you get them all done, um, and then receive the Eucharist. Right. That as was in, the tradition. Go ahead. As in the RCIA, mm, right? So right. It's the the same idea. So the Second Vatican Council restored for adult converts, and adult here means past the age of reason. In other words, um, the traditional, in other words, the Eastern practice. Right. Um, which was the Western practice as well. So for the first millennium, um, the the tradition was that um, baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist were administered together um, as the three sacraments of Christian initiation, corresponding to birth, um, giving the principle of growth to maturity, right? So being confirmed doesn't mean... So let me say something about confirmation. Confirmation, we tend to think of as... The child now confirming for himself yes. the faith into which he had been baptized when he couldn't um, decide for himself. Yes, absolutely. Yep. But who's confirming whom? Right? That's not mm-hmm. the meaning of the term confirmation or of the sacrament. Right? It's Christ who confirms, not we who confirm. Yes. Um, just as it's Christ who feeds us with his body, not we who feed ourselves. Um, and so from that point of view... There's nothing incongruous about being born and having been given the principle of growth to maturity. And what's that principle in the Christian life? The Holy Spirit. The Holy mm-hmm. Spirit is foundational for the Christian life, right? And that's why I think for you know Saint Peter on Pentecost or you know Saint Paul, it would be unthinkable to baptize and to postpone confirmation and the giving of the Spirit because the Christian life has, we could say they're flip sides of the same coin. Baptism, the sacramental sign, represents washing from sin, right? So it, in that sense, it represents a kind of negative, the taking away of original sin, the immersion into Christ's death, and then rising with him into the Christian life. But what is that Christian life consistent? It consists in receiving the Spirit, who is the principle of all spiritual growth and spiritual activity. And yes, that's going to be a process of growth that's never going to end, right? So that's the difference between growth in our physical life and growth in our spiritual life. Our physical life, we stop growing at a certain time, but hopefully that doesn't happen in our spiritual life. Um, And so we don't need to be mature in order to get confirmed. It's the other way around. I need to be confirmed in order to grow to spiritual maturity. Yes, yes. Um, And then the second thing about this is that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the whole life of the church. So the Eucharist receiving Christ is um, not a means to something else, like prepare me for confirmation, but it should be the other way around. I need the Holy Spirit to be um, made into one who can receive Christ um, in such a way that he can, um, in other words, I have to be spiritually alive and... um, active in order to need that nourishment to grow more. And so in that sense, um, the Eucharist properly 
theologically presupposes confirmation. Now, I'm not saying that right. there's a catastrophe happening when that order is reversed. It's just simply, I think, no offense to bishops who think otherwise or theologians, but um, I think it's less fitting. Um, sim and first and foremost, because of the centrality of the Eucharist. And Pope Benedict touched on this in a document from, um, in his um, Apostolic Exhortation on the Eucharist from 2007. Um, and he kind of urged the, um, the churches, the Latin church, to reflect on her practice of sacramental order. And the criterion of this reflection is so that the Eucharist emerges as source and summit more perfectly. Right. And thus, everything leads to the Eucharist. Yeah. So yes, I because it is a very strange idea. Yeah, it's a very strange idea to think that someone could be old enough to receive the Eucharist, but not old enough to receive confirmation, right? Because if the Eucharist is the source and summit, then then you've arrived. You're at the pinnacle of the Christian life, right? So and they, why would you wait so, to do right. confirmation? Excellent. Yeah, and they're just so intimately bound up together, mm -hmm. um, the three sacraments of initiation, right? And right. so in that sense, I think the Eastern practice makes a lot of sense. Obviously, there are practical difficulties. In the West, we're practical people, right? And so that's what determines so much of, of Western practice. I mean, just simply, you can't give an infant Holy Communion because they may slobber it. Um, right, right. And then with regard to um, confirmation, if you confirm them at seven, how do you keep them in catechesis? Until they're right. I mean, what are, what are we going to teach them in 12 year olds right. parish formation class if we're not preparing for confirmation? Right. Yeah, right. But that's a, the problem with that is, yes, I understand that it keeps them into in catechesis until they're confirmed. But then they think they've graduated and have. Yeah. And that's a huge problem in the I mean, that's something bigger than um, catechesis needs to be ongoing. Right. And that's simply I need to as a Catholic, I ought to know my faith as I know my profession. Right? Because, and this again comes back to confirmation. Confirmation gives every Catholic an incredible mission. Right? We tend to, we undervalue confirmation so much, I think. Confirmation gives me a share in Christ's mission of building up his church. But how can I build up his church if I don't know about the faith? And if I don't know about all, even Catholic social teaching and the sacramental life and the moral life, etc.? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And and I really appreciate it. And we're out of time, Dr. Feingold. I want to re be respectful of your time. But I, I could talk about this stuff for hours, and I know you could as well. I would love to have you back on. I have some questions specifically about the Eucharist. I have more questions about the sacraments. Uh, and uh, I've really enjoyed your book. I'm going to hold this up to the camera once again and commend this to all my listeners and viewers, Touched by Christ, The Sacramental Economy by Dr. Lawrence Feingold. Dr. Feingold, um, thanks again for joining me. I like to, when I remember, I like to ask my guests to tell us about one of their favorite saints. So as we uh, depart here, can you tell us about a favorite saint of yours and why? Okay, I've got, problems. I have too many, but um, <laughs> um, I mean, for this topic, it would be St. Thomas Aquinas. I mean, just simply sure. as the master who taught me to think about theology and then had such a love for the Eucharist and the sacraments. So Thomas Aquinas as a saint who lived a Eucharistic spirituality. Um, and that then goes into his writings that aren't simply dry and philosophical, but um, moved above all by, by love for the sacraments and her source and summit, the Eucharist. I love it. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, Thomas is a great namesake for anyone who's having a baby soon. Uh, you know, there's, there's Thomas the apostle who was willing to die for Jesus, who, who has the most beautiful, um, 
the most beautiful uh, acclamation uh, of Jesus's deity, my Lord and my God. Uh, there's Thomas More, uh, obviously Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and so, there, yeah, Thomas is a great one, uh, a good name. And, uh, and I appreciate you highlighting the work of the angelic doctor for us, Dr. Feingold. So thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, to my listeners, thank you for tuning in for another episode of Creedle. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Feingold. I do encourage you to go buy his book, Touched by Christ, The Sacramental Economy. It is very, very good. Uh, you will not regret reading it. You will have a much fuller appreciation of the sacraments, which is exactly why Dr. Feingold wrote it and exactly why I think you should read it. So thank you for tuning in, Dr. Feingold. Thank you so much. To my listeners, God bless you. Mm-hmm.